Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. In the beginning, there was the word. And the word was play. Charging in from the pavilion end, and like Ricky Clark, realizing there's no need for our run-up to be quite this long, this is the Gorilla Cricket Podcast. Cricket. This is all about cricket. Not just runs and wickets, so come and get it, Gorilla Cricket Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Gorilla Cricket Podcast. We're recording on Sunday the 26th of April 2020, which means it's been 41 days since there was any professional cricket. If you're keeping score at home, Nondescripts beat Saracens and Tumul Union beat Borrelia in the Sri Lankan Premier League Tier A. But we're going back even further than that to where cricket all began. Or at least, where it all began for some of us. This is the first in an occasional series called Gorilla Origin Stories, where we'll find out how cricket became such a big part of our contributors' lives that they think commentating on cricket at three in the morning in December is a perfectly sound way to spend time. I'm your host, Knuckle Pande, and who, I hear you ask, is my meeting and greeting? First up, she dispenses statistical justice to meerkats in light operatic couplets and ensured her child had three initials so they'd look good in the scorecard as England captain, Live from very close indeed to a first-class cricket ground, Dr. Katie Scott. Hello, it's lovely to be here. She's joined by another statistically-minded cricket lover who has ties to multiple counties, and any friend of Afghanistan is a friend of ours, it's Jules Farman. Morning, hello everyone. Our final guest has allegiances to not just multiple counties, but multiple countries. From Jamaica to Forest Hill via Belfast, and yes, okay, back to Belfast, Crack umpire impersonator and ace of base, Roger McCann. Hello, Knuckle. That's very kind. And hello, ladies. Hello, listeners. Hello, cricket. <laughs> yeah, hope you're all well. Hope you're all doing all the correct things to keep yourselves and your loved ones safe. Uh, so, yeah, let's get to it. Uh, what are your for your first cricketing memories? Uh, let's start with you, Katie. Well, I don't come from a cricketing family or friends, and I grew up in a country that doesn't really play cricket, which is, well, living in, on the border between Switzerland and France, neither of which have a particularly thriving cricket scene. Um, so my first 
real, the first time I really got excited about cricket was um, in 2005 when I was uh, staying in the summer holidays with my granddad in the UK in the hope, forlorn hope of getting a job. So I was rather stuck there with uh, very little to do except watch whatever happened to be on the telly that my da granddad wanted to watch. Um, he particularly enjoyed making sure that I couldn't choose what to watch on the telly. So five, uh, five whole days of one thing that he thought I probably wouldn't enjoy was great for him because it meant that he had total control over the television. Uh, unfortunately, it happened to be the Edgebaston Ashes test, which, uh, as we all know, is one of the most exciting tests in cricketing history. And by the end of that, I was hooked. That's a, I don't know if that's a good start or a bad start because it might set false expectations. <laughs> yeah, not, is cricket always like, is test cricket always like this? No. <laughs> I, I remember phoning my dad after the, uh, the Old Trafford test the next week just as it finished, going, Dad, that was another incredible, exciting test match. That was amazing. My dad was like, you do realise cricket isn't always quite like this. But oh, it hasn't really let me down, to be honest. It, admittedly, not everything is quite as exciting as that, but we've had some fantastic times ever since then. Yeah, for sure. So those that's August 2005, those those heady days, queues outside Old Trafford and Jones, Kasprovich, Bowden and hands off the off the bat handle and all that stuff. Um, so your, your family weren't into, weren't into cricket particularly at all? No, I mean, my dad had a passing interest in cricket. He had some of Mike Brearley's books on the bookcase, um, along with some various tomes on uh, chess matches and uh, 1960s computer programming. But um, he, he wasn't, he'd basically lost his interest in cricket when I was born and you know, since I'd been alive. Uh, but... Um, being a particularly good great dad he uh, as soon as he found out i was interested in cricket he reignited his own interest in it and uh, he's now a committed somerset member and spends most of his uh, summer at taunton watching the cricket so um i do know I, I i do have my dad to chat to about the cricket now but that was not something that really was the case growing up well that's wonderful uh you hear a you hear a lot of stories of um, family members, older family members, older brothers, and, and parents and uncles and so forth, getting their getting their kids into cricket. It's nice to see that it can happen the other way around. Uh, yeah, so uh, Jules, we're going to go to you for your your first cricketing memory. I was trying to work this out actually, so it's going to be a combination of either playing in the back garden with my dad and my sister when I was younger, or with um, the same guys but playing with for want of a better word, just kind of like an adoptive nan who used to um, run a care home in East London and play cricket with a dog bowl as a bat and the sort of dogs running around and there were sort of kids from the sort of home there. So it was more active with cricket um, and that's just because it's a bit of a social game and people could get involved or you could just sort of stand around and just watch everything happen. My dad was massively into cricket when he was younger um, and being a Kent man himself, um, that kind of was always sort of born through, which was kind of ironic when I started to support Essex. Um, and then my mum was also madly into cricket as well. So that's how it's sort of grown up. I wouldn't say there's like a massive great big playing legacy or anything like that within the farm and household. So there's actually multiple county allegiances for both of you. So Jules, it's um, it's Kent and then Essex. And Katie, you, you've uh, pinned your colours to the master of various counties over the years. No, no, no. I'm, I'm definitely a Durham, Durham fan. But my dad is a Somerset member. I have had membership at uh, Surrey and Middlesex because I lived in London and 
could. Um, and we, well, I live in Surrey now. <clears throat> and so uh, we think probably if the baby grows up to be an England cricketer, she'll go via the Surrey route. So I'm going to have to at least have some interest in that county. Yeah, sorry, stars. You can see her with whoever takes over from Ebony Rainford Brent in thirty in twenty five years or whatever it might be. Uh, probably, probably less than that, given how uh, young most women cricketers start. Uh, Rog, um, in terms of county affiliations, you're very much a man of the south coast. Yeah, um, I chose Hampshire because, um, well, as many people know, I, I happened to be born in Jamaica in seventy nine. So, if I'm trying to pinpoint an er- my earliest cricket memory, I can. I can almost convince myself about the 84 West Indians that they must have permeated my conscience in some way. And, and therefore, Marshall, Marshall, well, we're going to touch on heroes, but uh, Marshall and Greenwich were then Hampshire uh, players at the time. So it was this um, uh, knowledge of the West Indian team that I think ignited my uh, interest. My father, my father again, like the, like the ladies, uh, he was uh, maybe a lapsed cricketing fan. He grew up with... Um, his father and wisdoms in the wisdoms in the in the household. And my dad was a librarian himself, so he was able to. He had a good stash of cricketing books that then I could that he could take me through. He saw my uh, infant interest, and um, I remember some of his coaching books, and then that led into to him taking me out into the garden, and I would follow the. Uh, there was um, we've been we've been trying to look for it in the house. I'm currently, as you said, back in Belfast, so it's been a great treasure trove to visit, revisit all these old books but um we were trying to find this tom graveney book that he used to coach coach me and it showed um brian statham's kind of cross feet delivery stride which he would take me out into the garden and coach and then i i certainly i, I can i can conjure up images of the summer of 85 the 85 australians and and uh ours and ours in front of the tv and just absorbing ashes cricket and i, and I certainly remember in those days um contrasting to katie um as a kid, I didn't really know that cricket had results. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I remember, I remember sort of learning that as an older mm-hmm. child when, when, when it was over and one team would be, you know, there would be the running on the pitch, the foul, the, the, in those days, the teams would be sprinting off the pitch to get away from me. And I was thinking, why are they finishing? I just thought cricket was just the thing that just happened every day. You know, I just thought it was the, it, generally the fabric of, of life. And, and why does a team have to win? Why does it have to be over? These are, these are the sort of... Um, very nascent emotional memories I have of cricket when I look all the way back to the early er, early uh, surges of interest. So that's pretty young. It's five or six years old. To is, I, I was thinking about this myself because I, I my first memory of, of my first memories of cricket are playing in the back garden and and, and my dad being keen. I know um, that he bought a TV for the nineteen ninety six World Cup, but I was five years old at the time, so I have no memory of that at the time. And I'm I'm pretty sure that. If I was, it would seem unlike my dad not to have plonked me down in front of the TV, but I've got no memory of it. So the 99 World Cup in England, uh, we just got Sky at the time, so we were able to watch every game that was split across the BBC and Sky. Um, And I was looking up some of the scorecards from some games that I think might have been my first. And, you know, it's it's England-India from that tournament. It's India-New Zealand from the Super Sixes of that tournament when India went out of the tournament. Uh, And it's one of many games potentially involving South Africa, uh, we'll get onto my uh, my cricketing heroes in a second, but it's in that and kind of similar to you. I've got no uh, some of them. Obviously, the nineteen nine semi final imprinted itself on my on my brain, and I've gone through the scorecards and I know the story of the of the tournament now, having having researched it. But I've got no memory of the actual 
result or of or of even particularly caring who won um which i don't think is a bad grounding for a, for a cricket fan actually that lack of that lack of partisanship uh, so yeah m- somewhere in the 99 uh in the 99 world cup was me on tv rog um 84 or 85 katie the 05 ashes uh, jules um yeah first game we'll get into uh watching live at the ground but uh but tv wise jules um do you remember what your 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 introduction to televised cricket would have been I remember watching a test cricket match while doing a paper round. So that could have been about maybe nine, ten years old, but it used to be on the BBC. So we didn't get Sky till probably about 2000, 2001. And that was because of sport, basically. So they could watch football and cricket. Um, but yeah, when it, and then probably when it migrated onto Channel 4, watching them, no, definitely on BBC first, I think. Yeah, we're all. I mean, I'm just about. You know, the 2005 Ashes. I was 14, so I, I you know, have a very strong memories of, of that. But you know, we're all. We all grew up in uh, at least some of the era of free to air, free to air cricket. And I think it's it's interesting talking to cricket fans who are a bit younger than me, so who are in their mid or early 20s, and their uh, their relative lack of exposure to cricket, unless their families happen to be rich enough to afford Sky. So I think we're um, we we've talked a number of times on the show about this and. Um, as David Brooke contributed to the show, will will tell you who was the executive that brought cricket to to Channel Four. The uh, he described the seventeen eighteen Ashes as the invisible Ashes uh, because they were on BT in the middle of the night. But um, but I think that that exposure to cricket has has obviously uh, led to a great lo- abiding love of it in in all of our cases. Um, so it's not just about watching it on TV. There's something about being at a a live match and this doesn't I guess we could split this into professional and non-professional cricket as, as well so um the first games you saw in person um pick one start with Rog well uh it was the 85 Australians and I think um but growing up in Belfast like my father and his father before him you know we didn't have these opportunities to see um and maybe that's why the the sort of love grew a bit what grows in a different way when you're sort of pouring over wisdoms and you that's all you're sort of connection with professional cricket to be but but um this is certainly this is why the 85 summer i can remember it and i can remember my dad taking me the australians came over to don patrick i have the ways funny i i found the wisdom here and i found the page um it was on the 8th of august it was just before just after the fourth test this ashes was at one all and the australians came over and it was i do my memories of it being in the being rainy naturally it was in ireland and um uh, sort of sitting in the car, and my dad hoping hoping for the rain to, to pass, and I, and again it feeds into these early memories. I remember it was the summer. Andrew Hilditch was the one who kept getting out in the hook, and uh, I remember him walking. I remember that feeling that the two openers. It was. Uh, well, I looked it up. I thought it was Hilditch and Wood, because I, again I remember my first ever cricketing pun going in. That was Wood was for the chop. I think again these things that my dad would have. Would have taught, would have taught me, and these things that all just really went into a young, eager young mind. But um, I remember the Australian openers coming out of the back of the pavilion, Don Patrick, the studs sort of clanking on the, on the concrete, and they went through. I don't remember much of the cricket, but I remember Border getting runs, and I look at a Border got 91, and just what what's been lovely to tie it all together is uh, with Gorilla Cricket how. Um, when we did the Ireland Test match, we met the Ireland captain, who the captain that day was Michael Halliday, and we spoke to him. And uh, funny enough, then I ran into him at Lords uh, for the la- last year's game, Ireland versus England. And um, you know, having a, a brief um, 
acquaintance with him. Uh, I stopped and chat. I said, oh, I funny, you know, you captained the first ever game I saw. It was fascinating to get it from his perspective. He said, uh, oh, yeah, it was raining and none of the Australians wanted to play. And he went into Borders uh, dressing room and said, look, I know this is Irish conditions, you know. It would be great if we could get out there just for a few overs just to satisfy these fans. And he said an Australian player that remained nameless, but there's a, maybe if you look at the touring party, you might want to try and guess yourself. He said, uh, particularly Larry, Australian, leaned out the uh, pavilion or the changing room window and said, all you fucking Irish can go home. We're not playing any cricket today. And... Um, Halliday had to smooth this, the Ireland captain had. Of course, I don't remember that. As a six-year-old, I'm sure my father was very carefully guarding me from any uncouthness. But um, this apparently went on that day, and Halliday had to smooth over, and, and sure enough, they got, uh, what is it, they got 30-odd overs. Ireland didn't have to bat, and uh, Border lit the place up. So I, 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 that was my first game I attended, and again, I just took it from there. I met, you know, the fact that I'd seen some of these guys in the flesh, and like that would sort of that would last me for summers. You know, not every touring side would come over to Ireland, but I could sort of uh, um, exist on, on those. You know, connection between the the TV screen and the and the real life action. Looking at the touring party, I think I have a good idea of who that might have been. Uh, Katie. <laughs> oh, first game I actually attended in person was uh, England versus Pakistan. First day of the um, Test match at the Oval in summer of 2010, I think it was. Which was that was the year that it was the um, there was the uh, spot fixing scandal at the Lords game in that series. Um, but I went to the Oval game with a friend who lived in London and it was a fairly uh, nondescript day but for me having been watching cricket on TV and mostly actually listening to it on the radio for the previous five years or so um, to actually see these people in real life was a, a complete thrill it was just it seemed quite unreal that they were you know real people in the flesh just over the boundary rope from me uh, it was fantastic I really enjoyed it um, Alistair Cook at that point, which you wouldn't believe thinking about what he went on to do the following winter, but he was in a, a real uh, lull in, in form and there was good, a lot of talk of dropping him. And I was convinced that if he didn't get a century that day, then he would be dropped and that would be the end of his, uh, his England career. And he didn't get a century that day, but he did go on to get one in the second innings a couple of days later. Um, but I just, I, I had a wonderful time at that. I really enjoyed it. Um, but at, at that point I wasn't, I didn't really know much about cricket beyond test matches. Um, so my expectations of, of cricket were all about it being, and also mostly Ashes test matches, to be fair, that I'd really followed in detail. So I expected it to be a full crowd of people, everyone really getting into it. And that was my experience uh, that day. And it's been a, a bit of a shock in later years going to county games and finding that basically you could have an entire stand to yourself, uh, which, <laughs> I do love, I really love going to county games. I love the atmosphere of it, but it's really quite different to what I'd sort of expected when I was following cricket, having not actually attended in person very much. Looking at the, uh, looking at the tail of the tape from that series, that was actually the third test match. Uh, they, the fourth, the Lords test was the fourth. I actually, I'm, I'd forgotten that. I just assumed that Lords was the first test of the series, but no, the actual, the actual no ball incident uh, hadn't happened yet because uh, it was the third day of the, fourth test match you went to the the third test which Pakistan won by four wickets to uh to take a series lead actually uh 
sorry, not to take it seriously, to, to make it 2-1 with, with one to play. Mohamed Amir took took nine wickets in that match. And uh, Wahab Riyadh, one of the most entertaining uh, cricketers uh, that, we, that we've seen, if not always intentionally, made his test debut. Uh, uh, Jules? I was actually quite late in getting into the game of watching cricket live. So I have a feeling it was when I first moved to London. So that would have been about 2006, 2007 and going to watch Surrey and just echoing what Katie sort of said. It's just lovely. You can walk into a stand and you've got a whole stand to yourself and you can just completely immerse yourself um, into the game on a Sunday afternoon. So I have a feeling this is when they were doing, may have been the Pro 40, it may have been the One Day Cup. But just going to watch Surrey at that point. Um, and then, um, because the civil service at that point, you'd have a half day on the Monday, Thursday. If Easter was slightly later in the year, it meant it was usually the start of the cricket season. So it was just like quick, quick, quick. Okay, um, sort of 12 o'clock has come. Let's leave the office and get down to the cricket pitch. So they were, I think, my earliest cricket watching memories. But it was more county because that was more um, affordable than probably some of the international matches. That came a bit later for me. Do you, remember, do you remember when your first international um, match was that you watched as a spectator? I know you've scored quite a bit, a number of international games in recent times, but as a, as a paying punter. Do you know what? I'm trying to work out whether it was actually in this country. Um, so it could, I'm trying to work out when the England, New Zealand one day was. Uh, where there was a, there was a controversial, oh, I'm trying to work out what the controversy was, but I think I'm later. It was either watching England, New Zealand at the Oval um, in a one day up, or it was watching England, West Indies at Sabina Park, and that was in 2009, mm. um, just because it was actually a hell of a lot cheaper. Don't get me wrong, obviously you have to pay for the flight out there and the accommodation is a lot cheaper to go and do it in, in Jamaica than some of the more uh, glamorous destinations such as Barbados. But when you're paying, you know, just quite low money for a, a ticket, you can actually watch full five days of the test and you can see the story unfolding. And I think that's sort of the beauty of going to, if you can get the flight out there and sort of live in basic accommodation, the beauty of going to watch cricket abroad. Um, because you can afford to watch five days of a story unfolding and all the twists and the turns. But you also get a completely different perspective in terms of watching the game. Um, because, yeah, you do have your Barmy Army. Yes, you do have the gullibles who pay ridiculous amounts of money to watch um, test cricket. Um, but then you can also sit with fans who are just ridiculously knowledgeable about the game and also um, local fans as well who just give you different insights. So I'm just, I can't particularly remember, but it's sort of one of those sort of, it kind of all happened at the same point. That was a dramatic test match in Jamaica in, uh, in 2009. Uh, Jerome Taylor took uh, five for 11, five, nine overs, four made. Yes, indeed. The first the first test match of the Andy Flower reign, uh, which obviously uh, became more auspicious and then very much was not at the end. Uh, so you had a pretty dramatic start. Uh, um, and then talking of Surrey in, in 2006 or 2007, uh, the man we mentioned in our intro, Ricky Clark, was in his first stint at Surrey uh, at, uh, at that time, uh, charging in from here, there and everywhere. Uh, so we've got some some pretty dramatic uh, and and important games in the history of, of Test cricket that we've picked out. I remember my my first game that I saw. Well, I've seen some I did some club games live by that point, but uh, I don't really uh, recall them too much. And I'd seen a couple of uh, lashings uh, had played at my school, and I played I'd ball boyed in a lashings game actually, lashings against Yorkshire at what is 
at the KC Stadium in Hull. Uh, so uh, I remember Jimmy Adams, uh, West Indies and, and Hans. Sorry, in fact, I may be missing two memories there. So sorry, there's a different Jimmy Adams who plays for Hampshire, sorry. Uh, but Jimmy Adams probably... Yeah, probably was still playing. Probably was still playing Test cricket at that time. Uh, hit uh, six over the roof of the KC Stadium, uh, off God only knows who. Yuvraj uh, uh, Singh was playing for Yorkshire. Uh, batted very well. It's about the only thing he did for Yorkshire in that uh, uh, in that uh, season. Uh, but my the first Test I ever saw uh, live was uh, was England versus India at Trent Bridge. Days th- the Saturday and Sunday of that Test match. In 2002, Michael Vaughan made 197 that was so good and so chanceless, it was actually quite dull. Uh, the The pitch was an absolute feather bed uh, at, uh, at Trent Bridge. Uh, so you had India, so 357 plays 617, plays 424 for 8 declared. But it was, and I remember, I do vividly remember, Ashish Nehra was playing for India at that time. He didn't have a very long test career, more of a one-day bowler. And I vividly remember uh, shouting, Where are the Yorkers, Ashish? Uh, because, uh, which is actually not something I really do you know, these days. I think I was a much more boisterous young cricket watcher than I am a, a, a an older cricket watcher. Uh, but we, we got those tickets in a slightly roundabout way. We'd been to see a benefit match uh, visiting some friends in who lived in Southport, which has quite a long cricketing tradition. There'd been an India had been... Uh, some of the Indian guys had rocked up to a benefit, benefit match for Samir Dige, who's an Indian wicketkeeper who took a bail in the eye. Uh, not... not um, in the early 2000s. And so VDS Lakshman and Zahir Khan and Wasim Jaffa were uh, were at that benefit game. And we got chatting to them and we stuck around for the dinner afterwards and uh, got chatting to them. I was sitting next to VVS, which... Uh, so this was just not very long after he'd uh, scored the 281 against against Australia, which uh, which had made him obviously a, a hero in... Um, in the annals of, of cricket, and I was I was probably more India partisan then than I am than I am now, and so he was you know he's a relatively tall man, six foot six foot one, but he looked about six foot seven in my in my estimation in that way that uh, in that way that professional athletes do, and we ended up getting chatting to them, and we got Zahir Khan gave us a couple of comp tickets for uh, for the third and fourth for the third and fourth days of, the, of of that Test match, and it was it was great, and we were staying in the same hotel as the as the Indian team and the broadcasters, so we had. Uh, uh, had breakfast with the Star Sports broadcasters, and Navjot Singh Sidhu, I remember, was holding court at, at breakfast, uh, with uh, which is always entertaining. It doesn't really do a lot of cricket commentary work nowadays, but one of the more flamboyant commentators around. And yeah, it was a um, it was a not terribly exciting Test match, but Trent Bridge is a lovely place to go, uh, and it was it was quite it was nice watching Michael Vaughan um, before he became completely insufferable uh, back then. Um, so we so that's. That's us into, and I also went to the fifth day of the Headingley Test match of that series, where India wrapped up victory with Anil Kumble. Uh, that series was drawn one all. Uh, there were some very, very batting friendly pitches in that in that series. Uh, funny, funny, Michael. Just while you're there, that was actually the first Test cricket I saw in the flesh. I'd, I'd been, I had, I was living in London. I, I studied in London. I moved over in '97, but it took me that long to actually get to a Test. I went to a fair bit of uh, county stuff, but. Um, yeah, I was at the Lord's Test of that series, which uh, I just remember a couple of pals bringing me along. And what was really nice, my father happened to be in London at the time as well, and I was able to sort of convince him to come round post tea to get it. He was able to get a ticket at tea time. We weren't able to sit together, but it was he had never seen Test cricket either in his life, and uh, he has lovely memories of sitting among a load of Indians and 
and Sachin um, Sachin fielding down below and the Indian fans going crazy for him and I remember Crawley and uh, Vaughan I think I think Vaughan had a good summer that summer they got some runs in that evening I don't remember what, which day of the test it was but uh, that was that was a series that sits well in my memory too yeah, Vaughan and Crawley made second innings hundreds in England, won that test pretty comfortably. Ajit Algakar scored a Lord's 100, uh, which is something that uh, the likes of Sachin Tendulkar have, have, have never managed, and, and Brian Lara and a, and a few other notables. Uh, yeah, Virinda Sewag opening in test cricket for the first time, only the second time in first-class cricket, and Simon Jones made his test debut. Yeah, uh, yeah he got some runs. As well. I remember seeing him get some runs as well, Simon. There were a few debutants in the game. I sorry, a few debutants in the game. I saw at Trent Bridge, uh, the little and large Steve Harmison and Parthi Patel, who oh, was, yeah. I think he might have been just turned seventeen at the time, but looked about eleven. And uh, I remember my my mum being very paternalistic towards Parthi Patel every time she saw him on TV. Uh, the the, the uh, maternalistic rather the uh, uh, the the urge to mother hen really kicked in as this uh, this uh, chubby cheeked short wicketkeeper. Uh, Stood up to the, uh, you know, standing next to Andrew Flintoff, it looked like a different species almost. Uh, so that that's us in terms of uh, um, in terms of watching. Um, obviously, we've all, I mean, and Rod, you're, you're you probably play more than any of us uh, do these days. But I I played a lot as a as a through through school and and club and university cricket. And um, we'll start with you, Katie, in terms of in terms of um, playing. Um, you've actually got you've got a famous coach in your in your cricketing backstory. Yeah, so I played when I lived in Cornwall. I was there for about five years when I was in my master's and PhD. Um, and it's it's almost impossible to get to watch um, first class cricket from there. You have to go all the way up to Taunton, which is about four hours on the train each way. And I did do that for days of cricket occasionally, but it was a long day. Um, so instead, I started pl- uh, playing cricket um, more regularly. I joined my local uh, team, which was Falmouth C- uh, Cricket Club, and they had a women's team. Um, and it was, I think it was the second, so I went along to uh, indoor nets at the beginning of the season. I think it was the second week that I'd gone. I was chatting to some of the people um, there and they were talking about the coach who'd been, you know, who'd been coach, coaching us, you know, in, in his kind of, I guess, late, late fifties, um, Yorkshire accent, fairly tall. Um, and uh whose name was Chris and it was not until it was the second or third time we went that someone mentioned his surname was old and I was like hang on is that Chris old as in the guy who played in that amazing the 1981 Ashes series I mean that was what I knew about him was from reading Brearley's books about uh, the 81 series I was like that can't possibly be the same one and in indeed it was so I was co- coached for four years by uh by ex Yorkshire and England uh, cricketer Chris Old, I was very proud. The first time that uh, when he was doing um, when he was bowling for us and he got a caught and bowled, I then went home and looked up on Crick Info all the other players who'd been caught and bowled by Chris Old. Nice. <laughs> um, very very good. And who are they? Come on, kidding? Can you oh, name them? I can't remember now, but yeah, there was quite a distinguished list. Um, and there's also for women's cricket, there's a, at least at that time, there was a really good setup where England players would quite regularly go around the counties and offer kind of evenings of training to any women cricketers in the local teams who wanted to go along. So um, several times had uh, tra- coaching sessions with Charlotte Edwards and some of the other players, um, which was yeah, considering what an incredibly low standard of cricket I play. 
Um, I, I have, uh, yeah, I've been coached by, actually for that matter, I'd also forgotten during my undergrad years, I was coached briefly by um, Graham Foxy Fowler at, Dur at Durham, who he was in charge of the men's uh, team in Durham, but uh, he also occasionally coached the women's team. So I've, I've had, I've got at least four international England players in my coaching history, which considering how incredibly bad I am at playing cricket is quite impressive. Just looked up Chris Old. Uh, after struggling to cope with retirement for several years, Old acquired and managed his Clipper Fish restaurant in Prasans, Cornwall with his second wife, Letitia, in 2002. Apparently, he still coaches a local cricket club in Falmouth and teaches cricket coaching courses. Uh, but it was revealed in uh, 2012, because he had to sell the restaurant due to the credit crunch, that during 2012, he was working at Sainsbury's. Yeah, he worked at Sainsbury's in Truro. For all I know, he still does. That was uh, his uh, part-time job. He also, because um, he, he hung around the Falmouth Cricket Club a lot, he was a, you know, he was quite an active member. Um, one of my uh, friends had a seven-year-old son who uh, would come along to our uh, cricket coaching and um, he wanted to be involved in everything. And when the first team had a game, he would pad up and every time a wicket fell, he'd be running down the steps and someone would have to fetch him back and tell him it wasn't his turn to bat yet. Um, but uh, yeah, he was, he was really into his cricket and one day he was uh, at home sitting watching uh, Sky Sports, I think it was, and they had a retrospective on uh, the 81 Ashes and they had some interviews with players, uh, contempor contemporary interviews with the players who played in that series. And about half an hour in, he came running into the kitchen and he said, Mom, Mom, the Burger Man is on the TV. <laughs> so, yeah, his, uh, Chris Old may have played for England, but his, his greatest achievement is, is running the burgers for the, uh, the first team at Falmouth. Wonderful. Wouldn't it be lovely if that seven-year-old turned out to be Joe Root? Keep an eye out for his name on the uh, international list because he was a very promising player. So one day, Luke Richardson. If you ever hear of a Luke Richardson from Cornwall, that'll be him. Very good. Might have a Google of that uh, in just a little while. Uh, but uh, uh, Jules, in terms of in terms of your your history as a as a cricketer, <laughs> I think the phrase is. What history as a cricketer? Um, I was like, can we just flip this over to scoring? It'd be easier. So, I mean, I've obviously mentioned about playing in the back garden with my dad. Um, I actually fell into playing cricket by accident because I ended up volunteering for Cricket Without Boundaries, having never really played a competitive game of cricket in my life. <clears throat> More because um, when I was younger, girls went off and played rounders, and the boys went and played cricket. And there wasn't really that many opportunities where I was to play cricket. Um, on a more sort of club level, which was a massive shame because um, it would have been great fun. But uh, yeah, I uh, decided I was in my infinite wisdom to sign to go for, sign up to go for a, a charity that coached cricket abroad, having never played cricket nor coached cricket. And I thought actually the season before I went and did my first project, I thought I'd better learn how to actually play the game. So I joined um, a club called Ickenham, which is based up in North West London. And they were just the most loveliest bunch of ladies and obviously still are um, around. And yeah, I think the first game I actually played in, I fielded at mid-on and it was over at Hampstead or Wanstead. I just remember waking up the next morning, just barely being able to walk and just fearing that I was going to be um, called into bat or called into bowl at any point. I think we literally won the game. Um, actually, let's, let's rephrase that. The other 10 people on the pitch won the game with 
one run I think it was a really close match it was one of those things that I'm actually just really spectating it but I happened to just be meandering on the field and walking occasionally I was absolutely shocking um I think I batted twice um both times ironically I've been LBW I have technically played an international match which was quite entertaining against the Cameroon national side um, wow. <laughs> which was uh an interesting experience so it was a, a combination of different embassies so it was british embassy with, with cwb um cricket without boundaries it was with the british embassy the australian embassy and the new zealand embassy in cameroon and the cameroon national side of which it was quite a big event and they hired like a big brass band to come and play the national anthem so we all had to line up at the beginning and sing the national anthems and I really don't know to this day how professional sportsmen actually do that without laughing, not being harsh to like, any patriotic pride, but I was just absolutely giggling the whole way through as these sort of local cameramen took the pictures and I thought they could be massively disappointed and this pitch was horrendous, it was bouncy and everything else. They wanted to play a hard cricket ball, we just went no chance. Um, and I think I managed to just about nick one ball, dashed it down the other end, um, and then I think I've got one run and that was it. I was absolutely woeful. Um, so yeah, that's literally the limit of my playing career. And I've had about nine people try and teach me how to bowl and none of them have been successful. And that's not because they're not good coaches. I am just the worst bowler in the world. <laughs> that's a baptism by fire on tough, uh, bouncy pitches. We need more brass bands at cricket. Really do. I've just looked up Luke Richardson, by the way. There is a there is a Luke Richardson who plays for Falmouth uh, and played in the 2018 season. That'll be uh, the one. Well, is that he's in the the uh, adult team now? Is he? He's being allowed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is, there are the, there's a Luke Richardson who plays for Cornwall under 14s now, which is theoretically possibly could be some sort of young, younger. Keep an eye on him. Okay. Uh, well, he didn't do very well for Falmouth in 2018. He scored eight runs in four innings, a high score of five, and did not take a wicket. That's a shame. Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, cricket. I love Cricket Archive. It's one. Of, it's one of the greatest websites ever invented. Uh, uh, Rog, uh, we don't really have time to get into your entire playing history, <laughs> alas. But uh, but uh, uh, in terms of in terms of firsts, uh, sort of and kind of early development as a as a cricketer. Yeah, um, I suppose it, it came along with school. I mean, my dad first of all sent me to North of Ireland club, which used to play at Ormo, and I have a program here. Oh. Ireland played new. Ireland played New Zealand there in 1990. I remember being let off school to go to that. And uh, But that, that wasn't my local club. It was when I went, when I went to school, um, sort of playing with and with my real pals. And uh, there was an old boys club that came out of that. I suppose a, a first, the first time I played for the first 11, I think was in my fourth year. So I was, what's that? I was 15. And uh, my the skipper happened to be the son of my dad's best mate, um, so again, uh, nicely tied, in, and um, I was just—I I was always known as I was quite good technically. You know, I—I I, learned all these goods, but I was a bit of a meek teenager. You know, I—I I could open the batting. I always seemed to sort of top top out at about sixteen. I always got sixteen runs, or I would fail. But I never, you know, I never got any big scores. I would—I would never dominate a game. But I was technically okay, and I got on this side, and and then all of a sudden, um, I was asked to bowl, and I was. I could turn my arm over, but um, uh, these bigger boys, you know, and we were—it was up again at another international ground, um, North Down. You may have heard where we were playing Regent House School, Newton Art, and um, I don't remember the first ball. The second ball was a rank long hop, 
and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to get pummeled here. And sure enough, batsman swiveled. But clever skipper that he was, Ricky Finley Jr. had position. I hadn't noticed, but he positioned himself way out at deep square leg, as furthest boundaries you could get. And I looked up, and the ball sailed right down his throat, and he pouched it, and there I got it. Wicked with my second ball in, in you know, senior schools cricket, and I wasn't even a bowler. So we weren't the most serious in schools. We had a very good rugby reputation at the school I went to, but uh, the cricket has, has got better than it should, than it, um, as good as it should be for all the, you know, the, the talent, sporting talent. But we, we were lucky in those uh, heady days of the mid-90s, um, our cricket masters gave us license to mess around. And I've just got great, just a great memory of all the great mates and uh, summer days practicing. I was lucky this old boys club was, was close to me and my pals and we would go and play in the nets all day there. We'd bring a transistor radio up, listen to the test match and uh, spend golden hours there. So that was my Belfast development as an okay cricketer <laughs> that wanted to play as much and much, as much as possible. Yeah, there's uh, a bunch of wonderful stories and there's... I think it's 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 interesting. I, I hope to bring this out more as, if we do this uh, as a as a more than a one off with with various members of the Gorilla Crew. There's there's so many ways into the into this wonderful game uh, of ours. Um, this is about you guys, the guests, not about me. But I will say I do also have an international, uh, not an international cricketer, but an international coach in my in my coaching because my first ever coach and uh, I use the jokey as my first ever batting coach was Mark Robinson who went on to coach Sussex very successfully and the England women's uh, team. Uh, the reason I joke about the batting coach is because Mark Robinson set the record for f- most number of first-class noughts in a row during the 1990 se- season. Uh, Twelve in a row. Uh, 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 seven of them not out, admittedly. But including second 11 games, he failed to score in 17 innings consecutively from May until August. Uh so anyone who's seen me bat will be able to tell you uh, exactly where that's, uh, where, how that one's uh, gone. Uh, but uh, so we'll, so that's, uh, that, that's us. Uh, we, we've, we've talked about uh, first memories of uh, watching cricket both live and in the ground and the very earliest implantations of cricket into our brain and, uh, and of us uh, playing. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll come on to, uh, after the break, we'll talk early heroes and how our panel found their way into the orbit of the GC mother planet. But first, the break. Give us money. Welcome back to the Gorilla Cricket Podcast. We're talking Gorilla Origin Stories with Roger McCann, Dr. Katie Scott, and Jules Farman. Uh, so the we've talked about how we uh, have all got into uh, cricket and how we developed our, our love for the game, but uh, the role models and, and heroes and, and representation is, uh, is 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 important. So um, let, let's talk our, our first cricketing heroes, those people who stand, as I was talking about with VVS Lakshman earlier, who stand taller in the, in the imagination. Uh, Jules? <laughs> You've probably seen me laughing. So this shows the power of TV. Um, I remember really clearly watching the England-New Zealand test when it was on Channel 4. So what was that, about 99? Yeah, about 99. Yeah, 99. So two characters popped up. Um, Daniel Vittori, because he was quite hot, and when you're about 13, 14 years old, quids in. But actually, my hero at that time, 
was Chris Cairns, which is why mm. I completely recorded <laughs> when you talked about role models and how it all operates and those cricketing legends. Um, and to me, until obviously quite recently with events, um, that held true. I saw him play for Lashings. He would be amazing to watch. He'd be brilliant with the crowd afterwards. Um, and then I think I was lucky enough, there was a, a corporate day over at Lord's um, a few years back and basically what they do is they have um, young officials um, come and score the matches. So you'll have like 12, 13 year olds sort of going to score matches. There'll be sort of young people umpiring as well. And I'd be mentoring them. And on the, one of the first ones I did, Chris Cairns was one of the pro cricketers that turned up to play for one of the sides. And I was completely in awe. And we went over to the nursery ground to try and uh, score this match in like ridiculous weather. Um, and uh, yeah, Chris Cairns just launched an over for about six sixes. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a small ground anyway, the nursery ground. Um, and they were going right the way over to the hospital and he was just box office. And then afterwards, um, I went and collared him and sort of had a chat and he was amazing um, with um, the young scorer I was with as well. But the only slight problem with that, with him hitting lots of sixes, it delayed the game. Obviously chatting to him afterwards, um, I then made myself very late and my uh, mentee very late to get over back to the main pavilion to do the next game of scoring. So the only way we could do it was actually try and cut across the main pitch at Lord's. Um, you could do it because it's a corporate day, but um, they divide the pitches in half. So right where the um, cre uh, where the actual wicket is for the test of match, they sort of divide it there into two sort of smaller playing surfaces because I like corporate six-a-side matches. We, as we literally got over to the ground to sort of walk around the boundary, the players came out to start the game. So literally me and my mentee just thought, on sod it and we just put our books down on the outfield and we scored from the outfield at Lords, which hadn't been done I don't think I, there was some talk it hadn't been done since about 1910 1920 um, but there's us two sort of sprawled out and it's on mugs up in the Lord score box me and this uh, other young girl um, I think her name's uh, Jess uh, yes yeah, scoring this match on the outfield at Lords. so yeah Chris Cairns not so great um, given the fact what then happened since with all the corruption scandal and everything else. And I was gutted because that came out just after I got my book signed by him in New Zealand. Um, and then since then, I thought, sod it. I think everybody realises how much I love Kumar Sangakara and that man's an absolute legend in terms of being, uh, keeping it humble on the field, um, an absolute great cricketing player, but also just how he conducts himself off the field and that MCC speech. Please, for God's sake, if you do anything during this lockdown, just read that speech. It is worth the read. It is amazing. So he's now my current cricketing legend. Yeah, we've talked about that on the on the show before. In fact, we uh, had an episode during the World Cup uh, uh, inspired by a quote from Jules called "Keep it Sunga." Uh, uh, so yeah, Daniel Daniel Vittori back in his uh, back in his uh, long haired. Um, barely framed spectacles uh, days when, I mean, he always has looked like a grad student, but he really did look like a, someone on a sort of, some sort of language exchange uh, back in back in those days. Uh, hearts pounding everywhere. Uh, Katie, your first cricketing heroes. Well, anyone who knows me will know that my real cricketing hero is Paul Collingwood, and they will know quite how much I love him. He's, he's incredible. Um, I just, yeah, he's just amazing. But the main reason that I really started to admire him was the... Um, if you remember the South Africa series in 2009-10, tw 
Um, and there were two test matches there, which both ended in a very similar way, which was Cape Town and Centurion, uh, in both of which it looked like South Africa were going to absolutely thrash England and somehow Paul Collingwood managed to stay in, do his brigadier block thing and just you know, stay at the crease long enough to just about manage to um, achieve a draw for England. And I, those are some of the most tense moments I've ever had following cricket was, and, and the most exciting games, I think, that I've, I've ever followed despite ending in a draw. And if you try and explain this to non-cricket fans that, you know, some of your favourite games of all time were draws, they'd be like, you're just mental, basically. But um, he was just, he really, so gritty and so determined that, you know, he doesn't care about personal glory, just going for, um, just going for the, um, the win, saving the game for his country. Um, and those two games really, you know, gave him a special place in my heart. And ever since then, he's never let me down. I think he's fantastic. Paul Collingwood and sub-hero Bunny Onions, who uh, covered himself in, uh, in in dead-batted glory a couple of times with the bat during that during that series. That was uh, immense at the end when I've never cheered so much for a draw. We literally got up from the grass bank and everyone just made mental. The South Africans couldn't believe what had gone on. There was beer being thrown everywhere. Everyone was hugging each other. It was bizarre. And he realised it was a bloody draw and we'd all sort of managed to try and book ourselves on a, like a coach down to the beach mid-afternoon. So. Jill's just slipping in ca uh, casually that she was there, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I've been Rog. to South Africa on tour but since, but uh, to be there for that particular series would have been incredible. It's cool. Rog, early cricketing heroes. Well, you said Marshall and Greenwich. Yeah, I mentioned Marshall. Um, I think that was an early one, just how beautifully lied and, and how joyful he was and the high fives and the chain and everything, but I think you don't need me to wax lyrical about Malcolm Marshall. That's what Mark Nicholas is for. But um, maybe because when I, re when I, when I realised I was a batsman, then I transferred my love to Richie Richardson. I don't know if I was so, so much of a Viv Richards guy. I think Richards was just so swaggering and confident that I couldn't relate to him. But, but Richardson had that sort of more enigmatic approach, never sort of said much. Oh, you always saw him in the, the famous maroon hat. And yeah, I took... To wearing one, yeah. Knuckles has slipped on his white one. I, I luckily my sort of school colours were navy and maroon, so I, I adopted the maroon one, and I was, that was able to fit in, and uh, people indulged me that little, outrageously ambitious comparison to bat like him. Any time I, I could execute that back foot drive through the covers, and people would, would sort of, any time I could get any plaudits for that, that was that would be me. I was absolutely made up. But R Richardson, I thought. Um, and, you know, we all know I retain the love for the soft, uh, soft-headed, any, any batsman these days who calls for a cap or goes uh, without a helmet these days is a hero of mine. And Richardson, I, I think maybe my first heartbreak was then in 95 when he was beginning to decline. And he was captain of that 95 West Indians and they could only draw two, two with a not particularly good England team. And Richardson was forced to don the helmet and I just... My heart sank, and then there was a the semi final that they lost to um, Australia in the, the '96 World Cup. Where again, Richardson was he did everything he could, and his side let him down. I just thought Richardson's dignity, um, his flair, everything. And uh, since I've I've watched some of the captain's log, the captain's log interview he's done on Sky, 
where I just huge admiration for him. But for me as a teenager, it was the, the style, style of all these West Indians. You know, I loved them all. Roger Harper, Ambrose and Walsh. You know, I tried to impersonate them all. The Benjamins, um, Keith Arthur, and I loved him. He was so cocky. Jimmy Adams, but, but Richardson and Marshall were the two, two real standouts. I even thought about, remember wanting to change my name to Malcolm as a, probably as a nine-year-old. <laughs> and, you know, Malcolm was never the coolest, you know, the coolest name in the late 80s, but I was willing to take it on. I think I insisted for a week or two that I was, yeah, I was going to do it by deed poll and everything, but never came around. Malcolm McCann has a certain ring to it. I don't know if that's just the, uh, the alliteration. Uh, also, sort of, Nice little uh, nod to so Malcolm McDowell, one of the great one of the great uh, cricket fan actors of our time. Yeah, I, I talked a little bit about this, the ninety nine World Cup being my first, earliest memory. So, kind of my first cricketing superhero, and I think the way he batted and the way he carried himself in his sheer presence, uh, the Zulu Lance Klusner, uh, just an astonishingly powerful and effective uh, power hitter and you look back at his career and he's probably underused by South Africa in so many in with bat and ball um, um, really uh, a cricketer well ahead of his time you'd imagine if he'd if his career had been a few years later and he'd been close to his prime in when T20 cricket started and particularly when the franchise league started you imagine how much Lance Klusner would have gone for in an IPL auction uh, but the way he could take a game completely single-handedly and and I was crushed when South Africa lost that uh, or tied that semi-final, and uh, and Klusner got uh, got part of the blame for it. And I remember being very disappointed when Klusner uh, he had a, a bit of a, he had a decent knock in the 2000 or run in the 2003 World Cup. Uh, and again, South Africa went out in tricky circumstances. And I remember uh, taking against Graham Smith for leaving Lance Klusner out of uh, out of the squad when he became uh, captain. Um, so yeah, it's uh, Lance Klusner is the is my first one, and then. We're in the Sewag and Marcus Truscothic, which is odd because I'm not uh, a flamboyant uh, batter and I'm, I'm mostly a, mostly been a spinner. But, um, you know, I sort of looked at and analysed Warren and Kumble and Harbhajan around that time. But somehow, somehow it's it attacking batters of the one who've kind of really imprinted themselves on me. Perhaps because I can't do it. I don't have that power and I don't have that fearlessness to be able to... Uh, to be able to... Um, to dominate in the, in the way that those those guys did, um, and so you know you don't you don't make heroes uh, like you do when you're in your uh, kind of your tween years. You know when you're when you're that age, your mind is so much more impressionable, and uh, and that kind of that kind of myth making that goes along with with creating of heroes is much much easier when you're that age. But so uh, uh, yeah, you make a pretty good uh, you can make a pretty good team from the uh, from the heroes we've. Uh, we've all uh, selected Vittori and Marshall and uh, and Richardson uh, and and Collingwood. Have, it's also hard to have heroes who are younger than yourself. You can look up to people who are a bit older than you, but once you get to the age that you're uh, generally, or the um, international players tend to be a bit younger than you, it gets a little bit harder to, for them to be your heroes in the same way. Certainly true. Joe Root is the first uh, England men's captain who is younger than me. Uh, so uh, there's an odd feeling. It's, I feel myself looking down on him, even though he's physically taller uh, than me, uh, only a few months uh, younger, and England Test captain. Uh, but uh, with uh, with talk of, of heroism and talk of myth making, that'll be an end of this episode of the Gorilla Cricket Podcast. Thank you so much for sharing their origin stories to Roger McCann. Thanks, Snackle. Enjoyed that. 
Jules Farman. Thanks, everyone. It's lovely hearing everybody's backgrounds and stories. And Dr. Katie Scott. Thanks, Nacolin. Thanks, guys. It's been really nice talking. And huge thanks, as ever, to producer John Stone, slumming it in um, Harrogate Spa. Remember, if you sign up as a patron at any donation level at patreon.com forward slash Gorilla Cricket, you get all of our podcasts a day early, including our soon-to-return county cricket podcast, Gorillasha, hosted by Tony Bishop. But if you don't have much spare cash around, we understand, never fear, we're on iTunes, Spotify, Acast and Podbean, so download, share, subscribe, all those good pod things. And if you are listening on iTunes, please leave us a review and a five-star rating so more people can find it and create their own Gorilla Origin stories. We will be very soon bringing analogue tabletop cricket into the digital era with the Dickwell Abroad How's That Trophy. Eight teams, two dice, one metric shit ton of fun. Keep an eye on our Twitter feed for more details on that. I can say now that it will be live on our player at GorillaCricket.com and in video mode on YouTube. Exciting. We'll be back on the Gorilla Cricket podcast uh, very soon with a look into the hard but rewarding life of a fast bowler. In the meantime, keep washing your hands and for God's sake, save the Domestos for your drains, not your veins. Bye-bye. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.